continue our series of Bible and national defense, and we're covering right now, we're, last Sunday we covered God's ordaining of government, right, that God, God has purpose for government, and that God has intentions for government. We are staying in Romans chapter 13, and so if you've got your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. We'll be jumping around a little bit today, but today we're going to take that thought a little bit further. Not only has God ordained and established government, but today we're going to look at what is God's purpose for government, right? What is God's purpose for government? What does God want government to do? And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 13. We're specifically going to look at Romans 13.1. Here it says in Romans 13.1, it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The word established here literally means to set up and properly arrange something. Now, I have a few drawers at my house. Maybe you do too. Uh, we have the infamous junk drawer. Does anybody have the infamous junk drawer? Okay, keep your hands up for a minute. If you have junk drawers, plural, let me see. Okay, good. I, that was mostly just to help me feel good for, about myself. Um, yes. We, we all have the infamous junk drawer or junk drawers, and I have another drawer that is arranged. It's got knives and forks and spoons and such, right? And when that drawer gets discombobulated, your pastor struggles with his Christian faith. Why are the big spoons in with the little forks? Is anybody with me on this? There's a, thank you, some of you amen a little louder than others. Um, that's okay, we'll pray for you that you get organized. So, <clears throat> this word means, and some people even organize their groceries on the conveyor belt at the store, but we'll not go there. Oh my gosh, there are more of you, Joseph, there are more of you. If you ever want to just see Joseph come unhinged, just throw all your groceries on the conveyor belt, take a picture, and then tag him on Facebook. So, now you know how to mess with our drummer. Now, when God established, the word established means to arrange for a purpose. The reason that my utensil drawer is arranged is so that I don't just reach in and grab a knife and cut my hand, that I grab the right thing. The Bible says that God, in Romans 13, 1, that God established with intention government. And so when you establish something with intention, you give it a purpose, do you not? Right? When, when someone's designing a car, things have intentions. You, you can't put the steering wheel on the front where the grill goes and put the grill where the steering wheel is supposed to go. It won't work. Right? You better not put the knife where the spoons are because when I'm getting up in the morning to eat my fruity pebbles and grab the knife instead of a spoon, I'm going to be mad. God has arranged purpose, a, an arranged preset purpose for government. That's what this verse means. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. God designed throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, he designed institutions to, to help maintain the order that he created in this earth. 
those four institutions that we see from Genesis, not just, we see it from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We see it even in the millennial reign of Jesus and on into eternity, because if you were with us a few weeks ago, when we talked about our rewards in heaven, you know that in heaven, everything is not, quote unquote, equal. The Bible says that some of us will shine brighter than others, that some people will receive more rewards, less rewards, different types of rewards, because we all are unique. We carry that uniqueness with us into heaven. So we're rewarded based on how well we obey and follow God and in our own uniqueness. And so the four things that God has established to help maintain structure and order in the world he created, the first one is marriage. God ordained marriage through Adam and Eve between male and female. So what did he tell Adam and Eve? Go forward and reproduce. In my mind, I picture God going, you're really going to enjoy this part. Go reproduce. Right? And so he says, go. Go do this. The next, then, out of that is family. And we find that he ordained marriage in, in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Genesis. He ordained family. We see that in Genesis and in Ephesians and 1 and 2 Corinthians and throughout all of the scripture. He ordained family to help provide structure. Because why? Because God is a God of structure. He's not boring. He's certainly not boring because he told Adam and Eve, go reproduce. This is not a boring thing for you. Go do this. And so he arranges things from the smallest level, from, from two couple, or for a couple coming together to create a family. The third thing that he instituted is government. We're going to take a specific look at that and his intentions for that. And then the fourth thing is that he instituted free enterprise. And we're going to pull this out of scripture as well. That God ordained free enterprise from Genesis all the way into eternity. And I'm going to show you here in a few minutes that free enterprise will exist in eternity. Okay? Now some of you have never heard this before. You knew marriage and you knew family. Government might be new, but free enterprise is probably not something you've ever read in Scripture. Because you have to kind of connect the dots. Okay? But I'm going to show you that. <clears throat> Here's the interesting thing. With marriage, it's individuals willfully committing to each other. In family, it's the couple willfully committed to each other, to their children. In a government, it's people willfully providing goods and services to one another. In a free enterprise, it's all of those things working together to willfully provide goods and services to one another based on their God-given skills and their God-given abilities. Okay? <clears throat> I like what Rab uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin says when he talks about free enterprise. He says, economic activity is another way in which humans satisfyingly distance themselves from the animal kingdom and draw closer to God. When's the last time you saw two cows barter over a piece of grass? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's unique in the human spirit. It's unique in the human soul. We have the ability to say, you know what? <clears throat> Um, I can come fix your computer if you can come patch my tire. We have this unique, innate ability within us 
to barter and discuss and, and have communication and place value on things. Animals instinctly place value on things because it's their instinct. They know they need water, so they go to a stream to find a stream. But humanity can say, and you see this in clothing, right, in fashion. We value this fashion over this fashion, and then as time changes, the fashion changes. In fact, last night I was helping to valet park at LaPelle's prom. And I have a very fearful thing come over me last night as I was parking. This student paid probably an exorbitant amount of money for a tux. But the legs, like, stopped halfway between his calf and his ankle. And I was like, this is fashion. This is coming. It is here. I wanted to go up to him and say, you are in Indiana. The tide does not come in here. I wanted to say that, but I couldn't. It's prom. I didn't want to ruin the night for him. But you see, ideas and change, fashion changes, okay? Like skinny jeans are out. If you're older, I have news for Skinny jeans are out. Mullets are in. And so I've like seriously considered going back to my youth and growing a mullet. Just my wife is about ready to barf. So things, things change over time. And that ability to negotiate and to change and to barter is a spiritual trait that the animal kingdom does not have. And so every time that you and I go to the store or we barter at a rummage sale, we are exercising our unique spiritual God-giftedness. This is what free enterprise does. In fact, let me, let me just, how many of you, if, if you've got cash or a card on you, would you pull it out and hold it up for a minute? <clears throat> would you pull, just, yes, I'm asking you to get money out at church. Oh, my gosh. All right, some of you, okay, credit card doesn't count. That's called slavery. But if you have anything else, cash, card, hold it up. Let me see it. I'm not very rich. I just got a, I just got a dollar here. All right. Yeah, you've got to find it, honey. You don't have it? I don't care. Okay. Anyway, hold it up. Let me see it. All right. Keep it up. Now, if you obtained your finances in your hand, if you obtained that from mugging a little old lady on your way to church, put your hand down and put it back in your pocket. Good, nobody did any mugging this morning. If you obtained your cash and your money from robbing a bank on your way to church, put your money away, I don't want to see it. You put your money down. We have an officer in the building? No, I'm just kidding. All right. All, I'm going to assume then that all of the rest of you were able to obtain your cash because you took your skill, your unique ability, you applied it, you made somebody happy, and they in turn gave you this, right? That is a spiritual exchange. You can put your money down. This is a spiritual exchange that sets you apart from the animal kingdom. Horses don't do this. Raccoons don't do this. Raccoons just steal, right? This is a spiritual exchange, and this is a sign that you made somebody happy. And in their happiness and in their joy, they decided to give you what was due you. And then, of course, it goes both ways, vice versa, right? 
It's your unique ability to be as a free enterprise. I have my skill and I'll help you with your skill and we'll work together. And this is unique to humanity. This is unique to us. If we go back in history and look at Israel, look at the nation of Israel. God intended the nation of Israel prior, prior to 1 Samuel chapter 10. The nation of Israel was divided up into 12 tribes. Right? Simeon, Judah, Benjamin, and so on. And so these 12 tribes are divided up. Within each of these 12 tribes, they were ruled by judges and priests. That was it. There was no king. There was no form of big government for the nation of Israel. And those tribes worked together uniquely, independently, working together. And then something happened, much like what happens to all of us who follow Jesus for any amount of time, who have accepted Christ as Christians. We start to look around. And Israel begins to look around and they're like, wait, they have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king. I want a king! Give us a king! And God's like, God speaks to the priests and the judges and the prophets. And he's like, you don't want a king. The Mesopotamians have a king, and the Babylonians have a king, and they've got a king, and the Philistines have a king, and everybody's got a king. I want a king. God's like, you don't want a king. I'm ruling through independent, unique governments. So that when, but when one tribe is attacked, all tribes join together and defend themselves. This is God's plan. <clears throat> but God, in his sovereignty, says, okay, I acquiesce, you'll get a king. And what happens? Three kings in, we go to Saul. Saul doesn't cut the mustard, so he appoints David. God and David are tight. God says, David is a man after my own heart. Would anybody, I would love when I get to heaven for God to look at me and go, you were a man after my own heart. Right? I mean, we should all want God to tell us that. And then David has a son, Solomon. Now, Solomon's infinitely wise. If you don't, not infinitely wise, but he's wise. If you don't believe me, read the book of Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes. Both are his books. Read those. Ridiculous amounts of wisdom in there. But Solomon in his wisdom has a flaw. He taxes the people heavily. Heavily. He makes them work ridiculous hours. And so as a central point of government, Solomon begins to raise the taxes like never before. Solomon begins to put pressure on the people. You have to do this, and you have to follow this law, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And God is sitting up there cringing. I just, in my mind, I'm like, Solomon is so wise, and yet he's doing all of this. And then Solomon dies. Solomon begins to die. And so we have a transition period. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over the throne. Solomon Son, Rehoboam takes over the throne in 1 Kings chapter 12. If you don't believe this story, read 1 Kings chapter 12 yourself. Here's what happened. Rehoboam takes the throne. He's young. The Bible tells us 1 Kings chapter 12, he's young. So he has the guys he grew up with that are all his age. And then then he has his father, King Solomon, who's passed away, but all of... King Solomon's wise men and his elders and his consultants are there, and they're, in, they're, they're re- much older, right? They're like probably in, I don't know, they're older, okay? I won't say because 
they're about 50 or 60. Because, you know, life expectancy, whatever. So, <clears throat> we'll not go there. But, Rehoboam interacts with the people. And here's what the people tell Rehoboam. If you reduce taxes, remove the amount of laws that you've pressured and put on us, Rehoboam, we will serve you forever and we will make Israel. Now, keep in mind, this is the people talking. You reduce the taxes, remove the laws, and we will serve you forever and we will produce a nation like the world has never seen. Well, now, Rehoboam's a new king. He's young. He says, what am I going to do about this? In 1 Kings chapter 12, he goes to the advisors, Solomon's advisors. He says, here's what the people have said. The people have said that if I reduce the taxes, if I begin to remove laws and lighten the burden on the people, we will be a prosperous nation and they will serve me forever. And Solomon's advisors tell Rehoboam, yes, because Solomon leveled too many taxes and too much pressure on the people. And though he was wise, he failed in this. And so they tell him, do it, and the people will serve you forever, and you'll have a prosperous nation. Rehoboam's thinking, okay. And then he goes to the advisors that are his age. And the advisors that are in their teens and early 20s say, don't listen to those old dudes. They don't know what they're talking about. Tell, go back and tell the people, since you've asked for this, I'm going to make the taxes twice as much as they are. I'm going to levy new laws on you. I'm going to put more pressure on you. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam goes to the people and says, no, since you've asked for less, I'm going to give you more. Work harder, work longer hours, more taxes, more laws, more red tape. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 12, Israel breaks out into a civil war between the north and the south. Sound familiar? Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And Israel breaks away from Judah, and Judah and Benjamin are in the south. So Judah and Benjamin team up. The other ten tribes, and they have civil war. Because Rehoboam said, I'm going to create more taxes and more laws and more red tape. And put more pressure on you to perform. I want more control. The civil war breaks out in Israel. Israel is never a complete nation again until 1949. God's intent for Israel's government. Listen to this. It's going to be up on the screen. This is important. I want you to get this. Israel's government was intended to keep people free so God through them could redeem his creation. This was God's intent for Israel's government. Israel's government was intended to keep people free so God through them could redeem his creation. This was God's intent for Israel. He goes, hey, you know, way back in creation when Adam and Eve blew it, I'm going to redeem and restore and bring back to myself everything that's gone wrong. And I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to use the Jewish people to do it. And I'm going to do it through Israel. But what happens? Well, human sin nature gets, human and sin nature get in the way. Now you're like, oh, come on, Tyson, that's not really true. Actually, it is. The prophet Isaiah says, 
In Isaiah 49, verse 6, he he says, You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. That's anybody who's not a Jew. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what he tells the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. He goes, you, Israel, will be, or you will restore the people of Israel to me, and I will make you, who? The nation of Israel, the Jewish people. He goes, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. I'll make you a light to all of the other nations and all the other people groups, and you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is my intent for Israel. This is my intent for the Jewish people so that through Israel, God might restore all of creation back to himself because he loves us. This was his intent. This was his intent with Israel's government, that the government would keep the people free so that they could go out and share the gospel, share God with people so that they would be the light of the world. That was his intent. He said that through Isaiah. That was his intent. So what's God's purpose for government? When God designed government, he intended for leadership to guard individual freedoms so that citizens would have the freedom to accept or reject Jesus. This was his intent. He said so in Isaiah 49, verse 6. You see it throughout the history of Israel. His intent is that the government would allow the people to be free so that they can spread the gospel. If you don't believe me, Take a look at history since Christ returned. I mentioned this last week. I called a friend of mine who's a a history teacher, and I said, now explain something to me. Here's what she told me. She said, when the Roman Empire fell, we entered the Dark Ages. Now, coming out of the Dark Ages, we have the Roman Catholic Church. And then something happened. We have this little movement, just, just a little movement. Did you hit the sarcasm? Just a little movement called the Reformation. There had begun a groundswell that the gospel should not be kept just for the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope. That the gospel should be free to every man and every woman. And it should be written in their language so that they understand it. And so these ideas have been building until Martin Luther does something. He takes his... 99 theses, and he nails them to a door confronting the Catholic Church. It says, no, the Bible should be written and for people for them to interpret for themselves so that you do not control everything. And from that moment on, what you see in human history is this. Every nation that accepts that ideology rises to power. Whether it's the Germans or whether it's England or Holland to the United States. Those people that brought that ideology that the gospel should be for every person to read and to to interpret and to accept Christ. Anybody ever heard of the Puritans? Maybe in your history books? Follow where the Puritans moved from Germany to England, to Holland, to the United States. And those countries, when they arrived, mass revival began. And I'm not saying it's simply because of their theology. I'm saying the ideology and the spirit that they brought with them created mass revival in those countries. And when those countries had a mass revival and an awakening to the gospel, that country became powerful. 
France had a revolution about the same time as the United States. But France's revolution wasn't based in scripture. It was based on human ideology. One nation had a revolution based on scripture and what the Bible, what they believe the Bible says, and one nation had a revolution based on human thought and human ideas. One was France, one was the United States. Do you know which one rose to power? Follow your history. It's inevitable. Why is that? It's because, put that up there again, when God designed government, when God aligned government, designed government, he intended for the leadership to guard individual freedoms so that citizens would have the freedom to accept or reject Jesus. That's why when you begin, I didn't mean to give you a history lesson this morning. I didn't mean to, but, right? That's why you see these countries, because when Christianity comes into a country, suddenly the people are free to make their own decisions. That's why you see these things happen. And I got news for you. When you look from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to there really is no end, this is why whether it's Hebrews 13.8 or Micah 3.6, talking about the future, God's intentions don't change. His principles and his, his precepts don't change. Let's look you know, like Tyson, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really buy this. Okay, <clears throat> let's look at in Micah chapter four. Let me give you a little background before they put it on the screen. In Micah chapter four, we have a prophecy about the, what the world will be like after Jesus returns. Okay, and we get to Micah chapter four, verse four. Out of the New Living Translation, it says this. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity. This is when Jesus is king. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying, does it say a grapevine or the government's grapevine? Or, no. It says everyone will enjoying their own grapevine and fig trees. Let me pause right there. Just leave that on screen. Let me pause this for a minute. This is when Jesus is in control of the planet and in control of the universe. And it says that every person will have their own grapevine and their own fig tree. You know what this is? This is farming. This is agriculture. You own yours. They own theirs. Some people, some people provide grapes. Some people pr provide figs. Some people pr provide fish. Some people provide leather. Some people provide technology. Everybody has their own unique skills and their gifts and their talents, and they sit under it, and they enjoy it. And we allow the differences of the abilities to come out. For there will be nothing to fear. And then he tells you why there's nothing to fear, and you can operate under your own gifts and your own talents. Because the Lord of heaven's armies has made the promise. Heaven's armies are defending and have defended so that you can have the freedom to use your unique set of gifts and talents and abilities. Maybe you're really good at making jewelry and you love it. Guess what happens when Jesus comes back to rule and reign? You have that gift and that talent and that ability. You get to make jewelry and then barter and trade and, and use. Maybe, maybe, there's I don't know, maybe there's a monetary aspect to the heavenly kingdom. I don't know. But 
Each person has their own, not apportioned by the government of Jesus, not apportioned by anybody else but you and your gifts and your talents and your ability. This is what it will be like under the reign of Jesus. You're free, free enterprise. The Bible speaks to it in the future. So each person has their own gifts or talents and abilities. We see. We see that. Now let me, I, I, I want to, ru- this is going to ruffle feathers. So just hang tight, okay? Don't throw rocks. Okay, put that up on the screen. This phrase, everybody's born equal. If I went around individually and asked everybody what this means, I'd get a hundred different answers. What does this mean? What does this mean that everybody is born equal? It's true to an extent, but not everyone has the same abilities. Not everybody has the same motive. Not everybody has the same drive or ambition. Not everybody has the same mentality. We're all different. So when you say equal, what does that mean? It's a bogus phrase. It's a bogus phrase. I mean, we all know, are all of your thoughts equal? All the thoughts that pop in your head, do you treat them equally? Well, that's a good thing. All my thoughts are equal. No, they're not. (laughs) No, they're not. Right? This is why when Brent mentioned earlier, the renewing of the mind. Right? Everyone is valuable. Everyone is valuable. And everybody is worth Jesus coming to die for them. Everybody has worth. And everybody has value. But when we talk about equality, that's different. I don't have the same equality that you do. Because you are probably very skilled in some area that I have no knowledge. And that's what makes us a body. That's what makes us unique. That's what makes us be able to come together. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You know what that is? That's race. Those who are Jews and those who are not. And Paul says, listen, in Jesus, racism doesn't exist. Races are equal. And then he says, neither slave nor free. You know what that is? Economic status. Because we've talked about what slavery is in the Bible before. That's economic status. That's why I can come to church, be a part of the body of Christ, and I can have a homeless person sitting next to a corporate lawyer. It doesn't matter. We all have a part to play. We all have a part in the body of Christ. Nor is there male or female in the body of Christ. We're all one. That sexism doesn't exist in the body of Christ. We're all one. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You notice that he says Christ Jesus and not Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard me say this before. This is, this is very intentional. Christ represents his Messiahship, heaven. Jesus is his earthly body. 
from heaven to earth. If we were going from earth to heaven, oh, oh. but it comes down from heaven to earth. And so in heaven, remember what Jesus said on earth as it is on earth? No, it should be on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire sitting next to the homeless guy, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Asian sitting next to the Filipino. It doesn't matter if you're Asian sitting next to Hispanic, right? It doesn't matter. We all have the gifts and the talents. And so God says his purpose for government from the dawn of time was so that people could be free to use their unique gifts and talents so that people can be free to choose God or reject God. Which brings us to a point of decision. Will we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and begin then to retrain and retrain the way we think and the way we live our lives? Or will we continue to allow the world and our instincts and our desires and our emotions to guide us? Or will we allow Scripture to guide us? That's a choice we all have to make. See, God ordained government, and here's my purpose for ordaining it, God says. That doesn't mean that other governments won't exist, but this is, the intent, this is my intent. So this morning, you have, the, you have a decision to make. I will follow Jesus, or I will not. Let's stand up this morning. If you want to know more, I've, I've cut about 20% out of my notes. And I could have talked more, but this morning, if I can ask Steve and Bonnie to come up here and, and um, <clears throat> if I can get Aaron and Lori to come down on this side. If you're here this morning and you have something going on in your life that you need prayer for, whether it's healing, whether it's an emotional something emotional or maybe a relationship, whatever it is that you need prayer for, they want to pray with you as we close out in song. Or if you're here and you've not made that decision or maybe you made the decision, you need to recommit to follow Jesus. I want to invite you to come forward as we sing this song.